Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has created a military stalemate, perhaps soon to be called a quagmire, and a humanitarian crisis of a magnitude last seen by Europeans during World War II. NATO leaders are preparing for a long conflict and one that may involve chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, Russians are fleeing their country or resigning their official posts out of opposition to the war and their roles in it. Thousands have been arrested for their opposition to the war in Russia. What comes next after the NATO summit and the plans to strengthen troop deployments to NATO's eastern flank at the very borders of Russia? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpe, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Kadri Leek, who's an Estonian journalist and political analyst with the European Council on Foreign Relations. She focuses in her work on Russia, Eastern Europe, and the Baltics, and she was recently in Russia in the late 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kadri Leek. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much. So let's start with the NATO summit, which has just concluded and, and its consequences. I mean, what did the NATO leaders agree to at this meeting and where do you think things go from here? Well, um, NATO was discussing several things. They were discussing how to beef up the defenses of its own eastern members, including the Baltic states. As I understand, these discussions are going to continue. They were discussing how uh, to further help Ukraine, uh, taking into account also the possibility of chemical or nuclear attack. And finally, they prolonged the term of office for NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg for another year. Yeah, I guess it was a um, useful summit at a tense time, but 
no big takeaways to report in the sense that all these uh, discussions will have to continue. Right. I mean, they do seem to be wanting to send the message that, you know, if Putin steps over certain so-called red lines, that there really will be a NATO response. I don't know if that's the way you read it, but that's certainly the sense that I got from uh, the event itself and from this joint uh, statement that was released afterwards. But I mean, all of this, I guess, you know, in part depends on what is the real military situation. And as I mentioned in my introduction, you know, the term now that seems to be applied pretty widely to what's happening is that there's a stalemate going on, that the heroic Ukrainians have, you know, responded to this attack on their country uh, in an unexpectedly, you know, successful way, um, and are at least holding off the Russians and sort of defeating the what seems to have been the original battle plan, which is uh, to have kind of made a lightning strike, so to speak, and to take over Kiev fairly quickly and the country as a whole uh, within a relatively short time. And none of that seems to be happening. So, you know, maybe you could uh, comment on whether you think that's an accurate rendering of the situation on the ground and what you think the consequences of that may be. I think that is uh, accurate for the time being. Yes, exactly. As you say, uh, Russia has not achieved a fast victory. That could be uh, partly because they started the war based upon um, wrong intelligence. They didn't expect Ukraine to resist the way it does. Um, but it's also not visible that this fact is reshaping the war aims. I I do not see Moscow modifying its aims yet. Rather, vice versa, President Putin has borne all the costs of the war already, both in terms of Western sanctions, in terms of unrest in his own country, ever more draconian measures uh, they need to resort to to keep uh, society in check. So that actually gives him incentives to continue the war until he has also achieved the aims, because otherwise it would be a loss to him. And meanwhile, Ukraine is, of course, not ready to sign the uh, peace treaty in Russia's terms. They are emboldened by their own success and, uh, and they hope to continue. So, yes, it is tragic in the sense that so many people are suffering, so many people are dying, but it is hard to see how this could be stopped until uh, one of the sides gets a decisive advantage on the battlefield that would uh, allow it to dictate the terms of of peace. For as long as we are not there, I I cannot see that war uh, stopping. Well, that's certainly a worrisome uh, evaluation of what's happening, but it's consistent with what President Joe Biden said, uh, I guess, yesterday, uh, to the effect that, you know, the Europeans have to get prepared for this to be a long conflict. I mean, I don't see any of the kind of battlefield uh, advantage that you've just referred to taking place in the near future. And, and, you know, what appears to be in the offing is a kind of, you know, siege uh, of besieging of, of Ukrainian cities of Kiev uh, in particular, and, you know, lots of deaths. And of course, in the meantime, uh, enormous numbers, you know, growing numbers of uh, Ukrainians leaving the country, apparently between the internally di- displaced, there are 
about six and a half million internally displaced and another three plus million. So nearly 10 million or something like 10 million displaced uh, Ukrainians, many of them heading into parts of Europe, including, I guess, Estonia. Um, so, you know, that may in, indeed itself be part of the strategy, right, is to create this enormous refugee crisis. So I guess the question is, you know, to what extent do you see the possibility of this kind of battlefield advantage and how would it come about? I guess Russia has still reserves. Uh, in fact, they are just, um, they are about to reserve a of new intake into the army. The uh, conscripts whose training period ends on 1st of April, uh, they can now join army under contract. So my colleagues who uh, focus military affairs, they suggest that, yes, Russian forces might be tired and demoralized, but uh, but there are some fresh ones uh, coming. And Ukraine... Um, they are doing very well, but but even so, they have difficulties too. Um, they have lost many of our fuel depots. Reefs uh, have been burning one after the other after Russian strikes. They are, have lost equipment. It is a struggle uh, to resupply Ukraine with the speed that is needed uh, from the west, through uh, from Poland, uh, from uh, from Romania. Uh, so. At the moment, you would still expect Russia to slowly gain upper hand, though that said, certain tasks they have set to themselves, such as conquering Kiev, will probably prove impossible because uh, for Kiev, you'd need many more people than, than Russia will have even after 1st of April when new people will have entered the army. Uh, so, yes, I, I think it will drag uh, on for long as concerns refugees, I do not know if it has been Russia's calculation to create another refugee crisis that would upset political balance in Europe. But even if it was, I don't think that is succeeding because uh, Europe is very happily and uh, with amazing helpfulness receiving Ukrainian refugees. It is not opening up the sort of um, cleavages uh, among societies as did the previous refugee wave from Syria. And yes, I think I need to apologize to the Syrians. Ukraine, it, it is somehow, it feels very logical and really the only possible thing to do to give shelter to these people and, uh, and offer them them work uh, and and so forth. So I can see that also the European countries that were not eager to receive Syrian refugees in 2015, uh, they are now receiving Ukrainian refugees in, in great numbers and, and without a complaint. So it is surely it is it is a burden to social systems, etc. But um, on societal level so far, it seems to be mobilizing societies rather than splitting. Right. The key, two key words there may be so far, uh, depending on how long all this goes on and how many more refugees you know, flee Ukraine. Uh, I mean, obviously, the Ukrainians are already, you know, scattered throughout much of Eastern Europe and further west, no doubt. Um, and so, yeah, it was a different kind of uh, refugee flow than, 
uh, a flow of, of people from Syria and the Middle East who are, you know, further from a further distance away, culturally more different, language problems, uh, you know, religion, re- religious differences, all those kinds of things. So, you know, in a certain sense, of course, it's a happy thing that um, Ukrainians are being welcomed. However, you know, one might explain that, but part of it is that they've already got a certain amount of footprint in in the countries that they're fleeing to. In any case, uh, what I wanted to really ask about is uh, Europe and NATO uh, in particular with regard to the you know concerns about chemical weapons that might be used. Uh, that obviously wouldn't, you know, respect national borders insofar as they're airborne and blown around by winds. They might end up, you know, uh, in uh, Poland and other, you know, NATO countries. Um, you know, the possibility of, of uh, an errant missile landing, you know, 12 miles further west than one did a few days ago uh, that didn't quite, you know, land in Poland. I mean, what do you think was the kind of message that came out of the NATO summit in terms of what they were going to regard as a uh, a violation of NATO uh, integrity and, you know, something that would trigger the Article 5 uh, requirement that uh, an, an attack on one is perceived as an attack on all. Do you have any sense of that? Well, um, President Biden has been fairly consistent on that one. He has always said that when Russia attacks NATO territory, that'll trigger NATO response. That really has been his message all along, um, and that is that is very clear. The new statement from this week concerned chemical weapons. He did say that if Russia uses chemical weapons in Ukraine, then uh, the US would react the manner of reaction will depend on the manner of use. Uh, so uh, that statement um, leaves a lot to guesswork. How exactly the US would react, um, but but that is something. And it's quite obvious that the United States doesn't think that this is completely unrealistic. Rather, the officials tend to emphasize the likelihood of such an attack ever more frequently. And also, as I understand, they are trying to figure out how to help Ukraine deal with consequences. So there's a lot of talk about the sanctions and the extent of the economic sort of uh, pressure that the West, that the United States, the EU, etc., are imposing on Russia. Um, but there's also this uh, odd conundrum that uh, Western Europe uh, and Eastern Europe, I suppose, depend heavily on Russian gas and oil uh, for the functioning of their economies. Uh, and perhaps the most, you know, uh, obvious case of this is Germany, where uh, Olaf Scholz has said that lots of people would lose their jobs if we stopped buying, you know, Russian oil and gas. I think uh, Germany gets something like fifty-five percent of its gas from Russia. So I wonder what you would say about, you know, the kind of strange vice that 
um, Europe seems to be in with regard to these sanctions. I mean, they, they hit less hard for Americans who uh, don't rely on Russian oil and gas nearly so much. Um, so the pressure to you know get out of uh, supporting Russian uh, oil and gas interests uh, is not so great here as it is there. How do you, you know, how, how can we understand that situation? Well, yes, that is true. Um, Germany relies on Russian gas um, as concerns much of its heating system. If it stopped uh, buying Russian gas, then many homes would go unheated. And that's in some ways worse than um, job losses. You can, you know, if you lose your job, you can look for another one. Uh, But cold homes in the middle of winter is a problem in a country like like Germany. And it cannot probably be changed overnight. Uh, Germany has been uh, <clears throat> making its coal fuel power stations use gas instead because gas is cleaner than, than coal. And you can switch easily from coal to gas. But, but not to sort of proper green energy. It's impossible to use wind power or solar power for that, just like that. So it is a problem. And, and that means that objectively, Germany needs some transition period. Uh, the intention right now is to become independent from Russia by 2024. And that is actually... Um, fairly soon. I mean, that is uh, exceeding expectations. Uh, But I think that's also what one can expect. And it would be stupid to try to push Germany to do anything more or faster, because I sometimes worry that in our maximalism to impose uh, as painful uh, as possible costs on Russia, we will end up hurting ourselves so that we launch another economic crisis in the West. And and should that be the case, then, of course, Russia will have the last laugh. So uh, throughout the process of imposing sanctions, I have... Um, I have sometimes been worried if there are enough adults in the room who would make sure that Russia suffers more than than we do, because long term, uh, that is a smart way. It's the West needs to needs to suffer somewhat. So it's none of these sanctions are cost free, and I don't think anyone disputes the need for for some hardship. But one should keep an eye on on proportions. Absolutely. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you think is going on in Russia. I mean, there's, of course, a major debate uh, going on about, you know, who might uh, put pressure on Putin to change course, uh, whether it's the oligarchs, which I think are mostly dependent on Putin rather than the other way around, you know, the Siloviki uh, these sort of regime insiders who are believers in kind of Putin's project in general, but maybe not in this particular uh, undertaking. Um, you know, and then I mentioned in my introduction the fact that many Russians are leaving the country, feeling like you know there's no country left for them to live in. The uh, resignation of various important figures in media government, Anatoly Chubayas, a former Yeltsin uh, associate who's uh, resigned his post because of his, you know, 
disagreements about the war. Could you tell us, you know, how you think things look in Russia and are they, you know, how are the sanctions, you know, biting ordinary Russia? Well, Russia is, um, Russia is another country from what it was month and a half ago. Uh, that is no exaggeration. I, um, it has moved from authoritarian country to a pretty totalitarian one. Sometimes I mean, punishments for um, disagreement are harsher than in the Soviet Union. You can see that, uh, but also in terms of economy. I mean, Russia has moved backward, uh, sometimes close to 30 years in, in terms of what its economy is like and what is, uh, what are the things that are available in, in Russia. And, and really the whole branches of economy are simply disappearing. I mean, closure of Instagram, that was of course done by the Russian authorities, not by the West. But that actually means that many people have lost their sort of internet-based livelihoods, be it as, as bloggers or some have used, in many, very many have used Instagram for marketing. And, you know, they are not, they are not useful as consumers for Greek advertising platforms anymore. So sort of big de-digitalization happening ever more restrict restrictions also on media freedom um so it's a sort of new it's not exaggeration i think to say that a new iron curtain or a new curtain of i don't know of which material is is descending because it is ever ever more hard to reach Russian information space from here. You know, being a professional Russia watch, I, I need to follow their news, but it's technically hard because both sides have, have, have made difficulties and, and it's the same for them. And soon it will affect uh, consumer goods that are available, uh, production chains, uh, everything. So it is really major deglobalization in in some ways and i think the full consequences of it will only slowly emerge i'm not sure that uh, we are even aware of of all the consequences we are going to see but as concerns the political climate and society i'm not sure there is anyone who could stop president putin now because the people who could have told him that this war is a bad idea uh, they are very few uh, basically, defense chiefs, uh, defense minister, and chief of general staff, maybe heads of uh, FSB, which is domestic intelligence, and SVR, foreign intelligence services. Uh, but that's it. And if they didn't say so in the run-up of to the war, then I don't think that they will be able to say so now, especially given that the war is not going as well as it should and Putin might well think that this is their fault. So that actually creates incentives for them to double down and, and try to deliver what is expected from them. And society, I'm afraid, is also powerless. Uh, indeed, many are leaving. While it is still possible, uh, for the first time, there is serious talk about Russia not allowing people to leave for much longer. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it comes to that. Yes, I at the moment, I don't see light at the end of the tunnel. Longer term, of course, it is clear that 
that that Putin's regime has entered its final stages. Up until February, I was wondering if if Russia will find an evolutionary way out of the Putinist phase of its politics, or will it be some sort of revolutionary shake-up? And I had no clear answer. Now I think it is it is quite clear that this is a dead end. And at one point it will result in a in a major shakeup. Uh but that could still be many years down the line. I see. Well, that's not a very encouraging uh, diagnosis, I'm afraid, but I'm sure you knew that. And it suggests that, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen really outside of Russia on the battlefield uh, or at the negotiating table, but not really so much within Russia itself. But apropos uh, outside of Russia, I mean, one of the things that has been interesting uh, is uh, in sort of collateral uh, reaction to this invasion has been the effects on populism in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. So uh, the question is sort of uh, what are the consequences of the fact that Putin has now made himself and Russia kind of international pariah, whereas he used to be this kind of point of reference for populists who, you know, wanted to sort of criticize the the regime that they, you know, the country, the government of the country that they were living under. Does does this have sort of important positive ramifications, perhaps, for you know politics in other European countries? I'm thinking, perhaps, especially of Hungary here, uh, where Viktor Orban has you know presented himself as a good friend of Vladimir Putin, and now people are changing their tune about that kind of thing. So, what are the consequences of this for internal politics in Eastern Europe? Well, I think it's it has less consequences for Eastern Europe because, um, I mean, where you see populist governments, Poland has been furiously anti-Russian all along, uh, regardless of other things that it is doing. And Hungary, yes, Hungary is positioning itself as as friend of Putin, and they continue doing so even now. Uh, why? I mean, that's beyond me. Hungarian politics is something that I fail to understand and have always failed. Very funny country, though Estonia supposedly relate. Uh, but I think um, this war might be, uh, yes, having its impact on politics uh, elsewhere. Uh, in France, I think the outcome of a presidential election is now fairly certain. I mean, uh, Macron's chances have gone up. And and everyone else's, including Marine Le Pen's, have have gone down. So uh, I mean, well, you can surely see how it has constraining effect on uh, on pro-Russian populists. But then again, on on other populists, it it can also have of emboldening uh, effect. I mean, look at Boris Johnson, who uh, who is actually benefiting from what is happening. Everyone is now has. Of forgotten the uh, uh, the crisis he had about Downing State Street parties, and now he is trying to position himself as a stuff principled leader of a Western country uh, fighting Russia and succeeding to some extent. So um, yeah, there are effects, uh, but but these really depend uh, from country to country. Understood. 
So perhaps just a final question. Um, I mean, it seems to me that your analysis is basically suggesting that we're in this for a long time, but um, any thoughts about, you know, near-term developments? I mean, Zelensky seems to be pleading really for negotiations to take place and Vladimir Putin seems to be simply uninterested in negotiations. And insofar as that's the case, I mean, everything I see suggests that everybody sees the situation as one in which Putin is really kind of in the driver's seat. Our our position is relatively reactive. I mean, is there anything that can be done to change that calculation? Well, there are negotiations of sorts happening, but yeah, I don't think we should expect much from from Rose. And uh, yes, Zelensky stresses that he's open to negotiate and he's actually also ready to concede some ground. For instance, promise that Ukraine will never join NATO. I mean, that actually he was ready to do also without a war. So for that, Putin never needed to launch that war. But of course, for as long as Ukraine is successful on battlefield, I am not sure that even the society in Ukraine uh, would be ready to accept even the peace terms that Zelensky might offer. So Zelensky is also under pressure, both from Russia and both from its its own society. And that is why I think that this war will continue for a while more, at least until the balance tilts so that it becomes visible what the realistic terms for a peace deal will be. And then, of course, after that, it will continue in another form for as long as Putin remains in in office. And that's already uh, probably standoff in the shape of, of, of sanctions, restrictive measures, and mostly between Russia and, and the West. President Biden has been signaling to Putin that if, when he ends the war, uh, some sanctions could be lifted, having in mind probably you know, restrictions on central bank reserves, etc. The really tough measures. Um, but I think the relationship between the West and Russia will, will never go back. And it will not resume a um, sustainable cooperative model for as long as Putin is is in office. I mean, we are now really talking about regime change in Russia. For as long as the ideas that stand behind this war keep being the guiding ideas of Russian politics, for that long the West will have the incentive to weaken Russia by sanctions of various kinds, financial, uh, technological, etc. And yeah, I think that will continue for for a number of years. I'm not sure exactly. I think it was Ivan Krastev who said, we're in Vladimir Putin's world now. And it sounds like you largely agree with that. Um, not to put words in your mouth, but it does seem like uh, we're probably going to be in this for a while. And um, we're going to need sober analyses such as yours. So I want to thank Kadri Leek for sharing her insights about recent developments in Ukraine and Russia. Remember to subscribe and rate 
International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Horizons.